you have your Bibles with you, open them to Galatians chapter 4. We'll be reading in just a moment from verses 12 through 20. We, as an American people, as modern Western people, seem to be consumed with the understanding or the thoughts that we need to be logical and we need to have reason in every aspect of our lives. We don't always use it well. Uh, There are plenty of people out there that reason incredibly poorly and have no sense of logic, but there are very few people out there who would say that we don't need it. As a matter of fact, there is a ton of people out there who would claim that the only way we can truly have knowledge or truly have understanding of anything is through the application of math or science to things. These are the places where we actually have true knowledge. They are the very modes of understanding and gaining wisdom for us. Listen, I taught math and science for years. Uh, and, and I'm not one to sort of denounce the good of math and science. I think that they are very good things. I, I think that you can learn a lot about reason and logic through them. Uh, one of my least favorite things to teach was geometry. I hated geometry. I hated it in school and I hated teaching it. And I can guarantee you, and I don't do this very often, but I can guarantee you the one thing that your boss is not going to do today or in this week or in the next year or in the rest of your lives, even if for those of you who don't have bosses yet because you're too young, it will never happen that your boss asks you to prove that this is a rhombus. It's not going to happen. There's no practical use for that. Architects don't need it. There's no one who uses that kind of stuff. It's worthless, but it's good for one particular thing. Geometry teaches very clearly and very strongly what the role of reason and logic are, how logic actually works, that you can't make a proof of something if one little piece of evidence isn't right, if it's not supported correctly, the whole thing falls down. I think that those things are good. I think that we need to be people who understand how reason and logic work. But I think also that in our culture, these senses of logic and reason have taken far too prominent a place in our lives and certainly in the lives of people in the Western culture. Instead of having a a humbleness before God and a willing to believe what he says, people in the world would, would declare that I won't believe in something unless it's proven to me, unless there's some sort of scientific evidence that, that I can have and hold in my hand, I won't believe anything that is given to me. And we in, in Christianity, frankly, have understood this pretty well. In, in a five-second scan of my books uh, that I keep for like apologetic purposes, I found at least three, four, five books that had this sort of sense of evidence or reason or logic. And I've got The Reason of God by Tim Keller, 20 compelling evidences that God exists, which has compelled absolutely no one to believe in God. But nevertheless, they're helpful. We, we have Lee Strobel's The Case for Christ, The Case for the Creator. He's made like 18 case books in unless you don't know, uh, he's, he's, those are all helpful things. They're, they're helpful and they're good and they make a logical case for God. Paul, frankly, does this as well. Logic is not a bad thing and reason is not a bad thing. As he has gone through this particular book, the book of Galatians, he has argued with the Galatians in a number of ways that they do not need to take on circumcision, that all they need is faith in Christ. And he's done this in a number of different ways, all incredibly logical. He's argued from confession, He says, listen, the pillars and I got together, we talked, and we agreed in this confession. Peter agreed in this confession that as he, he says in in chapter 2, verse 16, 
We know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we have also believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law, because by works of the law, no one will be justified. So he says, listen, you don't need to accept circumcision because there is this confession. This is the common Christian confession. This says it, but then he goes on. He says, well, there's other pieces of proof. You know from experience you don't need it. In chapter three, he begins to talk about you've received the spirit of God, the very end blessing of all time that God would pour out upon his people. You've received it and therefore you don't need circumcision. He argues then from scripture. He says, let's listen to what the law actually says about itself. The law says that you have to do everything that's written in the law in order to be justified by the law. Why would you want to be accepted by God through the law when you have Christ? He says, scripture argues and reasons that you don't need circumcision. And then he argues from history. How has God worked through history? What does it mean that the promise was given 430 years before the law? What does it mean for the law to come up until now? He's talked about logic and reason for chapters now. It's not that these things are wrong, but it is that they are all and of themselves incomplete and insufficient. We are not robots. We do not listen to arguments for why we should or shouldn't do something. Almost no decisions that you make in your life really, truly, ever boil down to a logical decision one way or another. Almost every decision you will make today are made on the basis of your desires, your feelings, and your emotions. Where you're going to go to lunch, if you're going to go to lunch, who you're going to go to lunch with, what you are going to eat, how much of that thing you're going to eat, what you're going to do afterwards, all of those things are based on your gut feelings, your emotions, sometimes literally gut feelings, your emotions, your attitude. It's, it's based on a number of factors, very few of which are logical or reasonable in their end calculation. Now, Paul is going to turn, and instead of using logical reasoning now, he's going to turn and he's going to strike at the Galatians in a sense and their emotions and their desires. And this has driven a lot of people up a wall because they look at this and they say, listen, Paul seems to have run out of logical ammunition and now he, he's honestly just throwing anything against the wall that he can in order to, to get these Galatians to be on his side. I don't think that's true. I think what Paul is doing is very sensible and very good. He understands that logical reasoning alone is not enough to win people to what they need to understand. He needs to win them by their hearts as well. We say that we think that logic and reason modeled by science and math are the vehicles of true knowledge, but they are not sufficient for all of the knowledge we need. Many, many years ago, Augustine said something that Anselm then repeated, famously repeated. Augustine, the father of medieval theology, Anselm, the father of scholastic theology, both thought that this was incredibly important, and I agree with them. Augustine notes, if you have not understood, I say, believe. For understanding is the reward of faith. Therefore, don't seek to understand in order to believe. That is how we act. We want to understand before we believe. We need evidences before we believe. Augustine says, don't do that, but believe that you can understand. You believe first and then you understand. It is an emotional thing. You believe, you put your faith, your hope, your trust in God makes many appeals to us on the basis of emotions and desires. Listen to what Isaiah says in Isaiah 118 as the Lord speaks. He says, come now, let us reason together, says the Lord. And we, we hear that and we think, okay, reason. We're going to have some logical statements. We're going to have some sort of you were 
sinful because you did A, B, C, and D, and these are the, the destruction that I'm going to reap upon you. There's a very logical conclusion. There, there's going to be very detailed technical language that's going to follow from this. And instead, God says, Come now, let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall become wool. It's clear that he doesn't reason the way we reason. He reasons through the desires of people. He reasons through the emotions of people. Christ himself was prone to these kind of emotional appeals. Take the two probably most famous parables that Jesus gives, the prodigal son and the good Samaritan. The prodigal son, the whole idea is encapsulated in, it's better, it makes God happy, it makes heaven happy if somebody who has gone away, who has strayed, comes back home. He could have just said that. That is the point, after all. There's many other points to be made, but that's kind of the nuts and bolts point. And he could have just said that, but what does he do? He paints this beautiful picture, which is not the first picture, by the way. It's the third picture that he paints of a son going away and coming back to a father who runs to meet him. That is meant to stir you because Christ knows what you don't need are propositions of truth. You need pictures that move you. The same thing happens in the Good Samaritan. He pictures a man beaten up and we we are to get angry at the fact that a priest and other Levitical figures go to the other side of the road to avoid helping him. We are to be angry about that and, and we are to stand stunned as an enemy of him comes up and helps him. It is to move us, to goad us into what is right. We are not simply to be convinced of the truth of the gospel in our heads, but we are to be convicted of it in our hearts. And in order to have that conviction of our hearts, we need to have our emotions stirred for these things as well. The Galatians are walking on the edge of damnation. Paul's made it very clear. They are really finally on that line, which just one one step in the wrong direction could lead them eternally over the cliff. So Paul appeals in every way he can to save them from his fate. Just as Christ appealed to emotions, just as God does, Paul does as well. He says, imitate me as I also imitate Christ. Even here in 4.12, he says, brothers, I entreat you, become as I am, for I have also become as you are. We are to model what Paul does. Paul shows us how to speak to people. Let us go to the word of God to find out how we ought to speak to them as well. Let's begin reading in chapter 4, beginning in verse 12. Brothers, I entreat you. Become as I am, for I have also become as you are. You did me no wrong. You know it was because of a bodily ailment that I preached the gospel to you at first. And though my condition was a trial for you, you didn't scorn or despise me. But you received me as an angel of God, as Christ Jesus. What then has become of the blessing you felt? For I testify to you that if possible, you would have gouged out your eyes and given them to me. Have I then become your enemy by telling you the truth? They make much of you, but for no good purpose. They want to shut you out that you may make much of them. It's always good to be made much of for a good purpose, and not only when I am present with you, my little children, for whom I am again in the anguish of childbirth until Christ is formed in you. I wish I could be present with you and now change my tone, for I am perplexed about you. May God bless this reading of his word. So let us... Turn to the word of God and find out how we should appeal to the emotions. First, we appeal to real emotions. We appeal to real emotions. 
Sometimes when we talk about appealing to emotions, what can actually happen is we just ditch logic and reason altogether and we are simply trying to make people believe or make people feel something. We manufacture emotions and we will do things that are wrong to manipulate them into doing what we want them to do. Sometimes we do it through guilt. Think of people who want you to give to charities. I'll have a picture of of an African boy with a distended stomach and, and small arms. You can tell the child has an eaten in days and they say, are you so hard-hearted that you don't want to feed this child? You, you don't care. You sit in your fat cars and you sit and eat your fat meals and you refuse to give even a penny for this. And, and to be honest, you, you didn't really wake up that morning feeling anything about African children. And, and right now, you really just want to give money because, well, you, you don't mind the African kids, but you really mind this woman. And you really just want to make her quiet and and kind of assuage your guilt a little bit. The problem is when you are guilted into doing something, you're not actually doing it for the right reasons, right? When you're guilted into doing something, you do it because you want to not have guilt on you anymore. You see, you're not actually doing it for the African child. You're doing it because of the woman who's standing in front of you making you feel guilty. And the problem, especially for Paul, is the minute that that guilt is removed or the minute that you are hardened to her calls for it, you stop. Because it was never actually about that African kid to begin with. And it has nothing to do with whether that is a good charity or a bad charity. It's simply how you're being led into it. Guilt is a horrible thing to use and to manipulate in people. Further, there's also peer pressure. Churches, there are reports, this is just phenomenal, of churches, very large churches, one specifically in North Carolina, that will put its own members in specific spots in the congregation so that when there is an altar call, those people will act like they are responding to the altar call, or they, though they have been told beforehand that when the altar call is given, you are to come forward to make it seem like there's a great movement of the Spirit within the church so that other people will look and say, well, there's something going on. I better kind of get in on this. Or they, they do 18 verses of just as I am, right? Now, at some point in time, you make a decision for Christ to assuage your guilt to join an exclusive club, you think something important's going on, or simply because you want the worship service to stop so that you can go get lunch, right? At some point in time, you're making a decision which isn't because you feel like making it. You're making it because of totally other reasons. These are manipulations of the emotions. Guilt makes you feel like giving, but you don't really want to give to what is important. You feel no love for that poor African kid. You really just don't want to feel bad anymore. Paul doesn't do this. Paul isn't trying to manufacture the emotions in the Galatians. He's not saying, listen, you don't care about me anymore. You don't love me anymore. What he does is he points back to their real, true emotions. Listen to how he speaks, beginning in verse 13. You know it was because of a bodily ailment that I preached the gospel to you at first. And so that's important. The word is actually flesh, but you kind of get the idea of why he talks about bodily ailment here. He says, I showed up and there was something wrong with me. Now, Now, we don't know what that is. And we could, I've got a guess as to what it is. I'm guessing that it's probably some sort of eye ailment, given the fact that they would have gouged out their eyes. Later, he talks about writing with big letters, but frankly, we don't know. If I was pressed at a gunpoint, I would say an eye ailment, but it could have been anything. He shows up with a limp. He shows up with a cough. He shows up with something that made him stop in Galatia to get rest. And he says, this bodily ailment was why I preached to you in the first hand. And then he says, and though my condition was a trial for you, probably a test for you. You see, 
if you are a gentleman who's walking around the first century world and you are going to proclaim that you have the secret to all of God's blessings and you come and you're almost blind or you come and you limp badly, you come and your body is a wreck and a mess, what are those people going to think? What kind of blessing is that? He says, it was a test for you. You looked at me and you thought that Man, this, this guy probably isn't actually receiving the blessings of God. This guy is, is something else. But no, he says, it was a test for you, but you didn't scorn or despise me. Literally, you didn't spit at me. He's, makes him, why would they spit? Well, many times the Greeks had these sort of weird cultural practices and, and their understanding of the demonic was much different than ours. And if you show, if somebody came to you and they had this sort of physical ailment, They thought at times, especially when it came to eyes, that if you looked at the person, you could actually get that ailment yourself. So so whatever wickedness had happened to this gentleman could be passed to you simply by looking at him, and you can ward it off by spitting. Okay, Spit three times, and you can ward off the demons. And Paul says, you didn't consider me as something to be shoved to the side, and you didn't spit at me thinking that I was evil or wicked, but how did you receive me? He says, you received me like an angel. You received me like Jesus Christ would have received me himself. They loved him. They accepted him. And what's more, they loved him so much, he says, you would have gouged out your eyes and given them to me. Paul isn't isn't trying to manufacture their love for him. He is reminding them of their real, true, and affectionate actions that they took toward him. Paul is reminding them of what truly was, of how they truly felt, and asking, where did that go? He says, where was that blessing? Now, the reason why you accepted me, the reason why you didn't reject me, was because when you heard the gospel, you realized that there was blessing in this for you. There was joy in this for you. Where did that go? It was a real thing that they felt. It was a real emotion. He doesn't have to make it act. He doesn't have to pretend. He doesn't have to well up in them the sense that they are going to feel something great that they have not felt before. He can rely on the things that people feel. And when we take the gospel to others, when we act amongst people in the world, we don't have to manufacture things in them. Most of them already have feelings and emotions about things that we can use for the good of the gospel. People have problems with the injustices of the world. That's good. I'm glad you have problems with the injustices of the world. I've got good news for you. God has appointed a man who will judge over all of the earth and he will make all of it right. Pain. It's horrible to live with chronic pain. But I've got good news. If you trust in Christ... He not only will transform that pain from something that is is unnatural and, and unusable to something for his own good and for your own good, but there will be a day when he will take it away from you. Oppression. You hate oppression. Good, good. The governments of this world seem inept and incapable of putting a stop to oppression. North Korea just idly sits there. They can't do anything about it. I've got good news for you. I know a king who not only will put an end to oppression, but he will never allow oppression and his kingdom will never be oppressed. Guilt. You feel guilty. I've got good news for you. Jesus Christ has removed our guilt by taking our sin on the cross, paying the penalty for our own 
unrighteousness and giving us in its stead a righteousness that you don't ever have to feel guilty or heavy laden ever again. In every way, we can use people's own emotions and their own desires and show how the world will never ever truly meet them and to show how they can be and will be met in Christ. Don't manufacture it. We appeal to emotions rightly, to real emotions. Secondly, we appeal to emotions with right motives. Even charlatans can use real emotions for their own ends. They will pry on the needs and the desires of people in order to get them to do something not for their own good, but for the people's, the charlatans' own good. Paul makes a case that he actually does care about the Galatians, very much cares about the Galatians, and not for his own sake. Look at what he says in verse 17. He says, they make much of you. He says, the agitators really do think a lot of you, and they do really care about winning you to their side. They make much of you, but for no good purpose. He says, their motives are wrong. What they want to do by, by making much out of you, by, by saying, hey, you are really important to us. Why don't you come and listen to us? He says, what they're trying to do is not get you to make much, or not, not to make much of you, but so that you will in turn make much of them. He goes on to say this, they want to shut you out. That, they may, that you may make much of them. Listen, this is the way it has been since the beginning of time. Every five-year-old who has gotten together with his other buddies as five-year-olds who put up signs in their little five-year-old handwriting that says, no girls allowed, has understood the pull of having an exclusive club, right? Go to Harvard and go to Yale. They've got these little exclusive clubs, which are already, by the way, exclusive clubs, those exclusive clubs have more exclusive clubs. We have exclusive clubs everywhere. Several years ago, they made a huge deal out of the fact that Augusta National, this golf course in the middle of Georgia, only allowed male members, very, very rich male members. They said, it's sexist. You've got to let women in. And, and women wanted to get in. And I was always puzzled by that. If you were a woman, what in the world makes you want to go play golf with a bunch of old men who don't like you anyway? Where is the appeal in that? There are literally thousands of beautiful, probably not as beautiful as Augusta National, but beautiful golf courses that you can play with, with friends and family that will love you, that want you there. And instead, what did they do? They just cried about the fact that they couldn't get in to play golf with a bunch of old men who don't want you there in the first place. There's something about making an exclusion that doesn't work for the good of those on the outside, but it makes those who are on the inside really appealing. And he says, that's what their agitators are doing. They are excluding you. They're saying you are not actually in the kingdom until you get circumcised. And the reason why they're doing it is because it makes them feel special. It makes them feel good. And Paul says this in verse 18, it's always good to be made much of for a good purpose. He says, there's nothing wrong with them thinking that you are important. I think you're important. I make good of, or I make, I make much of you for a good reason though. He goes on to say, not only when I am present with you. I think that that's really the key. For Paul, his motives were demonstrated that he actually felt for the Galatians because he felt for them when it didn't improve him or his life or his well-being at all. Paul cared for them when he was present and he cared for them when he was absent. If nothing else, it is the presence of this letter that makes it very clear that Paul cares about them even when he is gone. In 2 Corinthians 11, 28 through 29, 
after speaking of these incredible sufferings that he has gone through, physical difficulties in the world, he's been beaten, he's been whipped, he's been shipwrecked, he's got dangers everywhere from people, from places, from nations, from bears and snakes, everywhere he goes, Paul is in danger. He's hungry and he's cold. He goes through this litany of things and then he says this, amazingly, not to mention these things, there is the daily pressure on me of my concern for all the churches. That is a phenomenal statement. He says, I've been whipped three times with 39 lashes. Whipped. I've been beaten. I've been thrown over a stone wall. I've been shipwrecked. To add to that, as though this were the most important thing, he says, there's a daily pressure of me on all of my children. I'm anxious for them. I love them. It's a hardship for me. He goes on to say, who is weak? And I am not weak. Who is made to stumble? And I do not burn with indignation? He says, I care about them when I'm gone. I care about them when I'm present. The charlatans, when they leave, man, they don't care about you at all because they're only in it for themselves. It is important to be made much of even when there is no benefit for the one who makes much of you. Paul, caring about these churches, left him in anxiety. It was as bad as being beaten for him, but he did it because he loved them. He cared about them. We must not appeal to people simply to put sort of another notch on our belt so that we can proclaim how wonderful we are, how well God uses our ministries. We, we have these reports coming back of thousands of people saved by preaching. And then the question is, what are you doing with those people? How are those people being fed and nurtured in the admonition of the Lord? You just let them go and, and, and not have any sort of way to handle them in the Lord. What happens to them? How do we know that you care for them? If we simply here at Crossway want to increase our numbers, if we simply want to make ourselves seem better, if we want to make ourselves sort of culturally attuned so that we can be in and with it, if we want to make ourselves relevant somehow, if we want to make ourselves successful by gaining width, as we talked about this morning with no depth, if we want these things, we can manipulate our ways into them and we can lie to people about the motives for these things. But as Paul says in 2 Corinthians, you are building with wood, hay, and stubble, and there will come a day when it will all be burned away. Build with that which lasts. The only way you're going to do that is by building with right motives. We appeal to emotions with right motives. Third, we appeal to emotions reasonably. This isn't just Paul throwing anything he can out there simply to get them to believe. It's not, although he does use emotive language, he does use their desires He is pulling on their heartstrings, so to speak. He doesn't do it without an appeal to emotions. Paul has talked already about their former love of them. He's reminded them of that. And then he said this in verse 16, Have I then become your enemy by telling you the truth? He says, I came to you and I preached to you. I demonstrated my love for you and you demonstrated so fully, so fully your love for me. I leave all of a sudden, now I'm your enemy. Where's the change? What has happened in that? What Paul is doing is getting them to be self-introspective. It's reasonable, he says, that your love came to an end when the agitators came. That when they preach this false gospel to you, all of a sudden, now I'm your enemy. I was never your enemy before, but now all of a sudden, you behold me as though I'm an enemy. All I did was come and preach the gospel to you, the gospel that you still say you agree with. What then has happened? The reasonable, 
The reasonable answer is the agitators have turned them against Paul. And Paul's asking, why? Why has that happened? He is appealing to their emotions. He is appealing to their desires. He is appealing to them with this sort of emotive language, but he's doing it through the use of reason and the use of logic. Paul's rhetoric here is meant to get them to think through what they have done, and it's highlighted and it's punctuated even better with this great emotional plea. Charles Spurgeon wrote in a lecture about how to convert people. He said this, those, that is, those who need conversion, require not so much reasoning as heart argument, which is logic set on fire. You must argue with them as a mother pleads with her boy that he will not grieve her, or as a fond sister entreats a brother to return to their father's home and seek reconciliation. Argument must be quickened into persuasion by the living warmth of love. Cold logic has its force, but when made red hot with affection, the power of tender argument is inconceivable. That's what Paul's trying to do. He's not just trying to throw anything out there that he can, but he is using his reasoning abilities and setting it on fire. He wants to pull at the Galatians with everything he's got. And that is what we are after, logic on fire. Yes, we logically argue for the gospel. We will give people 20 evidences for God, but we will plead with them. We will entreat them to come to know the Lord. If you're not passionate about it, why would others want to give themselves up to that? No one wants to give themselves over to cold logic. No one's laying down their lives for a reason. They lay down their lives because it matters. And the way they know it matters is because it matters to you. It won't ever matter to them if it doesn't to you. We appeal, fourthly, to emotions. We appeal to emotions sympathetically. Paul notes as he opens this section that he has experienced what the Galatians themselves are experiencing. He, too, was bound by the law at one point in time. Now, the the Galatians haven't hooked themselves into the law yet. It's very clear that they have not given themselves over to circumcision, but they are enticed by it. And Paul says, become as I am that is free from the law. I'm totally free from the law. I am not hindered by the law anymore. Come as I am because I have become as you are. That is, Paul has taken the journey that they have already taken. They were free from the law. They're thinking about hooking themselves into the law. And Paul says, but I've already made that journey. I know what you're going through. Galatians 1, 11 through 14, Paul has already said this, For I would have you know, brothers, that the gospel that was preached by me is my man's gospel. For I did not receive it from any man, nor was I taught it, but I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. For you have heard of my former life in Judaism, how I persecuted the church of God violently and tried to destroy it. I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my own age, so extremely zealous was I for the traditions of my fathers. He knew what it was to be entrapped by the law. He knew what it was to be in love with the law. But then he says, But when he who set me apart before I was born and called me by his grace was pleased to reveal his son to me, I didn't go up to Jerusalem. He said, I changed. In a heartbeat, I changed. And Paul says, I've been there, Galatians. I know what you're going through. You need to listen to me. I've ridden that ride before. I've walked that path before. I know what you're going through. We are to be as sympathetic as I can, as we can with people who are struggling to come to know the Lord. We know what it is to have fallen into sin. We know what it is to be addicted to certain behaviors. We know what it is to need salvation and to stand on the outside and look in on it. 
And then certainly in more concrete senses, many of the obstacles that you've faced in your life and many of the things that you've gone through in your life are used for precisely this point so that you can be sympathetic to people who struggle in the ways that you have already struggled. I don't know why God gives people cancer, but I know at least part of that is so that they can comfort people who have cancer. I don't know why God allows persecutions, but I do know that once you've gone through persecution, you can sympathize with people who have been persecuted. I don't know why God takes some marriages through difficult times, but I do know that people who have walked through those difficult times can use that time as a sympathetic way of gaining an audience with people to let them know the Lord. Same with financial insecurity. All of these things, these are evidences of God's work in your life that other people need to hear, and you can look at them and you can sympathize with them. We appeal to emotions sympathetically. And lastly, we appeal to emotions sincerely. The Galatians know that Paul is speaking the truth about himself. He, he doesn't play down his own care or concern for them, but he is both open and sincere with his love and concern. Listen to how he talks. My little children, for whom I am again in the anguish of childbirth until Christ is formed in you. Paul cares about them. They are like his children, he says. He is very sincere and clear. And by the way, Gentlemen, if you are going to appeal to something, I am going to tell you to walk very carefully with the childbirth example, okay? You can, you can overplay that because you've never been there before, but Paul says very clearly, listen, this is what it's like for me. I'm in anguish until you're formed again. And listen, for us, frankly, most labors simply end, it's pain and then there's child, right? In the first century, that's not how it was. Death was always, always waiting at the door. It was always there. Child mortality rates and mother's mortality rate in giving birth was just astronomical compared to what it is today. And Paul is saying, I, I feel like I'm on the verge of either great things or even death with you. I, I want you to know, he's saying, how much I feel for you, how, how deeply impactful this is for me. He's being very sincere with them, very clear as to his own emotions and feelings when it comes to them. You can be stoic, and you're going to have a stiff upper lip. Those are really important. You're in a fire. You don't want to be the dude crying in the corner, right? You want to be the guy who's got the stiff upper lip. We'll get through this. We'll run through a wall, right? We got this. There are times and places for bravery. There are times and places for those things. But when you are dealing with people who are on the verge of hell, when you are dealing with people on the verge of damnation, that is not the time for it. You plead with them. You entreat them. You, you tell them that you care about them, you love them. People are not going to side with you if you don't show them that you love them. It's just that simple. And we here at Crossway, I understand that we believe that the Holy Spirit is what works in people's lives. You preach the gospel, the Spirit works, but the Spirit is pleased to work when you are pleased in him. And the Spirit wants people to know that they are loved and cared for. It's just, this is, this is just experience. Go back and look at every great evangelist that's ever lived. Look at Jesus. You look at Paul. Look at more modern examples. You can look at the late Billy Graham. Look at George Whitfield. They cared. Every single one of them cared. Story uh, about George Whitfield. We read this story in the Sunday school that we, we had when we talked about Whitfield. Who's this? probably the greatest evangelistic preacher sans Jesus and Paul that ever lived. Incredibly emotive guy. Lived with Jonathan Edwards. So Jonathan Edwards, again, would get up and he would just read. 
right? He, he would have very emotive words on the page, brilliant metaphors, but he would just read. Whitfield wasn't like that. Whitfield was an actor. He was all over the stage. He, he, was, he, he would be emotional. And every, he would have tears streaming down his face. And somebody asked him about that. He said, I'll tell you a story. The Archbishop of Canterbury in the year 1675, this doesn't seem like it's going in a good direction here. Archbishops of Canterbury, just, but he's, he's going somewhere. The Archbishop of Canterbury in 1675 was acquainted with Mr. Butterton, the actor. One day, the Archbishop said to Butterton, pray inform me, Mr. Butterton, what is the reason you actors on stage can affect your congregations with the speaking of things imaginary as if they were real, while we in the church speak of things real, which... Our congregations only receive as if they were imaginary. Why, my lord, said Butterton, the reason's very plain. We actors on stage speak of things imaginary as if they were real. And you in the pulpit speak of things that are real as if they were imaginary. Therefore, Whitfield said, I will bawl. He says, I will not simply be logical with people. Because I said do. He says, I will not be a velvet-mouthed preacher. Too many preachers are that. They're unwilling to be, this is, I'm not Whitfield, this isn't an act. Um, it's just how I am, leave me alone. Um, you can be cool, calm, and collected in a number of different circumstances. But if you're dealing with a brother who has gone astray, or if you're dealing with somebody who's never known Christ, that is not the time. Now, there are people on the street that you're going to meet that you can talk to, that you can interact with, and you can share the gospel with without knowing them much. And it's going to be very hard to, to be very emotive about that. But I'm telling you, the people who you are most likely to reach are the people who you know very well and that you ought to care about, and they ought to know that you care about them. When you're in a fire in the middle of a softball game, an argument with your kids and the family, it's fine to be cool, calm, and collected. But if you're talking about heaven and hell, if you're talking about glory and destruction, that is not the time. You don't have to break down in tears. But my goodness, let the person know you care about them. Let them know something. Don't just reason with them and argue with them. That is not helpful. It doesn't speak to the glory of Christ and it doesn't speak to an affection for their souls. It speaks to you wanting to be right and no one cares. So, what all of this comes down to, if we wanted to sort of boil it down and distill it into its most essential elements, is love. By appealing to others' emotions, we demonstrate love for them. You show that you care about them. You don't just care about the arguments, you care about them. When you do it with the right motives, and you do it by, by appealing to who they are, not who you want them to be, not manipulating them, but appealing to who they are, you demonstrate that you care about them, you want to meet their needs, you want to do everything you can to show the goodness and the virtue of Jesus Christ. Paul wrote this in 1 Corinthians 13. You might know these words. Friends, don't be a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. He says I can know everything. I, I can do amazing things. I can save people from the fire. 
I, I can fix any car that I look at. Uh, Paul didn't say that, but you kind of get the idea. I, I, can, I can do all the Superman things you want me to do, but if I don't have love, it's worthless. You can, you can spread the gospel far and wide. You, you can talk to people and you can argue with them left and right. You can, you can do all of the things that you were commanded to do, but if you do them without love, you are nothing. You're doing nothing. It's worthless. You don't appeal, appeal to people's emotions because you're trying to manipulate them. You don't just use logic because you think that people are just not logical. You appeal to them all, their mind and their soul. Love people for that, that through the gospel is how you save their life. James ends his epistle with these words, as I will end my sermon. My brothers and sisters, if any among you strays from the truth and, turns, and someone turns him back, let that person know that whoever turns a sinner from the error of his way will save his soul from death and cover a multitude of sins. Let's pray. Father, you are a good and mighty God. We acknowledge that we deserve very little from you. We deserve nothing from you, and that which we do deserve, we, do, we don't want. We deserve hell. We deserve destruction. But you have given us life and breath and all things. And more than that, you have given us Christ. Christ who wept for Jerusalem, who was angry at the lostness of his people, who gave his life out of love. You then gave us Paul and the other apostles who gave their lives for the truth, who laid themselves down. You've given us church history and heroes of the faith who have been led to lions and who have been spit upon and have been shunned for their appeal to the truth of Scripture. You've given us many examples of people who have laid down their own lives for people like us so that the tradition might continue, that they might never know. Those people have acted not because they themselves were terribly loving. They did it because they are modeling their behavior after Paul, who modeled his behavior after Christ. You've called us to be like Christ. May we do so with an earnestness and a passion today. May we do so being affected in our own spirits by the gospel. May we do so for your glory and the good of your name and most, most of all, so that you might be honored and praised by people who do not know you and that souls might be saved from your wrath and anger through the work of your son. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.